These are extraordinary times, but with too much information and much of it confusing. On Body Ecology Living, I interview some of the best minds to help you live your best life possible. We'll discuss topics on using foods to heal, on building a hearty immune system, on aging well, on taking care of your gut and, of course, your brain, but most of all, on clarifying the right steps to be happier, healthier, and having the energy to make a difference in your own world. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for joining Body Ecology Living Podcast. And as usual, I have a wonderful guest. This guest is really special because he's been a friend for a long time. He's somebody that I have great respect and admiration for, and so does everybody else in our field. He's very well known in functional medicine. He's probably most well known for his work with gluten, uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and also autoimmune disorders, and he has a great book on autoimmune disorders, actually. And his name is Dr. Tom O'Brien. So the other day, I put out a newsletter and it was on uh, fructans, which are, fructan is, um, uh, it's actually a fermentable oleosaccharide that can be found in wheat and in other places, but um, fruits and vegetables and all. And it, it's a FODMAP. And I just wanted to, for people to know that it isn't just gluten in wheat that is a problem. It's also the fructan. So I read an article on it, and I think I've made it very clear that, you know, I didn't say eat gluten, but evidently uh, it maybe didn't come across quite right. I, I'll tell you myself, personally, I never eat gluten. I haven't eaten gluten for as long as I can remember. And I even go further than that, and I don't eat flour products, uh, which almost, you know, they could be gluten-free, made with rice flour or something, but I don't even eat those because I don't think they're gut healthy. Um, anyway, so Tom contacted me and he sent me an email saying that he thought maybe the article was misleading. And I said, well, let's do a podcast. And so here he is to join us. So Tom, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Donna. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And, and um, uh, thanks for your openness on this topic. Oh, yeah, of course. I want to always tell the truth, and I don't mind being wrong. If things prove me wrong, I'm happy to say so. But um, <laughs> so that's how we decided to do the podcast. But I made a little list of things here to be sure to bring up because honestly, I have known about gluten and teach about, you know, the body culture diet is, and from the very start, it was. Um, uh, let's say casein and gluten free, low carb rich in probiotic foods and so on. So I've been against gluten for 25, 30 years or something. The body ecology was really the first paleo diet. That's such a cool term, but I didn't know that term. And we talked, you know, because anyway, it was first put out, body ecology diet book was put out for people with these conditions, but turns out that it's really good period for many, many conditions. But, but, um, the reason, but what I've noticed over all these many years is that lots and lots of people will tell you that they're gluten-free. And then you can stop and say, well, why are you gluten-free? And they will say, oh, because it's good for you. Or because my friend said, I'll lose weight if I'm gluten-free. So I remember Jimmy Kimmel, I think it was, did a funny skit 
where they went to a park in LA uh, where many runners run and they stopped them and they said, are you gluten-free? And everybody said they were gluten-free. And yeah, yeah, I'm gluten-free. Yeah, yeah. and well, every single why, one of why them are you didn't know why. So I know right. this is... Well, you know, it's uh, it's good for you. Or, yeah, 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 that's yeah, general. It's good for you. But so that's really where I want to start because I would think and you would think that by now everybody knows that they should be gluten-free, but why? So let's start... Why not? Why we should not be having gluten in our diet? It's a very basic. Well, that's question. a really great place to start. And uh, um, I never say everyone needs to be gluten free, or else I'd be categorized as a fanatic. What I say is that if you have a health condition that you're not getting the results you want, just test accurately to see if your immune system is fighting wheat. And if your immune system is fighting wheat, your immune system's just the armed forces in your body. You know, it's the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, the Navy. We call them IGA, IgG, IgE, IgM. It's just the armed forces there to protect you. So when it gets activated to protect you, if you're fighting wheat, you can't eat wheat anymore. Your immune system says, no, you can't negotiate with your immune system. So just to be clear, I never say everyone needs to give it up, but everyone should be checked accurately. And that's important, the right test. But why? Why is it such a common problem? And it's really easy. And this is what they're teaching at Harvard Medical School right now, which I'm so happy about because our new younger docs will be coming out and are coming out. They know this. They they understand this. 14 of the top 15 causes of death in the world today are chronic inflammatory diseases. 14 out of 15. The only one that's not is accidental injuries. Everything else is a chronic inflammatory disease. So the first thing you want to do in trying to be healthier is live more of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means everything from your microbiome to the air you breathe in your house. You know, it goes on and on and on. But the goal here is to reduce inflammation. Now, what we know about chronic inflammatory diseases is that there are five components that set us up for a chronic inflammatory disease. The first one is your genetics. And you can't do anything about your genetics. That's the deck of cards you were dealt in life. But whether or not those genes give you a disease, you know, most people, most diseases, it's not predetermined you're getting the disease like the Alzheimer's gene or the breast cancer gene. It doesn't mean you're getting breast cancer. It means that if you pull at the chain too hard of life, where the chain's going to break, it always breaks at the weakest end, you know, or the weakest spot. It's going to be at one end, the middle, the other end. It's your heart, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, your breasts. Wherever the weak link is, that's where the chain's going to break. So don't pull on the chain so hard. Well, what's the pull on the chain? The pull on the chain is inflammation. And so every disease from diabetes to rheumatoid to multiple sclerosis to Alzheimer's to Parkinson's, to acne, to seizures, to depression. They're all inflammatory diseases, all of them. 
So the key here is how do I reduce the inflammation? And in order to do that, we need to understand the five pillars in the development of chronic inflammatory diseases. The first one is your genetics. And with your genetic, you can't turn genes on and off. All of us have used that language, let's turn that gene off for many years. And it turns out you can't do that. But what you can do, because genes operate on dimmer switches, and you can dim down the genes of inflammation and turn up the genes of anti-inflammation by lifestyle and many other features. So for the first of the five pillars, the goal is to dim down the genes of inflammation. That's the goal. The second of the five pillars is that the environmental triggers that we're exposed to, it's the environmental triggers that have their hands on the dimmer switch of your genes. So that whether a gene gets turned up or gets turned down are the environmental triggers. Now, the environmental triggers, there are a number of different categories, but there's two basic types, the ones that come in from outside the body and the ones that are already inside your body. And you have to deal with both. And so the ones inside the body are called endotoxins, and they come from having an altered microbiome. They also come from having a bunch of lead or mercury or uh, organophosphates or phthalates, chemicals that have accumulated in our body. So there's the toxicity of the outside world and the toxicity of our inside world. That's number two, the environmental triggers that actually have their hands on the dimmer switches. Number three is that the environmental triggers create dysbiosis. The, the environment of the inside of the gut. And it's what, and the most common trigger for inflammation is what's on the end of your fork. That's most common. And because when you swallow it down, it impacts on the good guys and the bad guys in your gut, the bacteria, the viruses, all of it, the yeast, all of it. So getting dysbiosis from too many environmental triggers that create inflammation, you get dysbiosis. The dysbiosis creates number four, intestinal permeability, the leaky gut. And when you have the leaky gut, Mrs. Patient, your intestines are a tube from the mouth to the other end. One big long tube winds around in the center there. The inside of the tube is lined with cheesecloth. So only really small molecules. So when, when you swallow food, it's not really in the body, it's in the tube. How does the food get into your bloodstream to go to your brain and your muscles and your bones and your kidneys? How does that happen? Well, the food's got to go through the walls of the tube to get into the bloodstream. So the inside lining of the tube is lined with cheesecloth. So only really small molecules can get through. Bigger molecules can't get through. They've got to go further down the intestinal tract being broken down by the enzymes until they're small enough to go through the cheesecloth. But when you get a tear in the cheesecloth, now bigger molecules get through that aren't supposed to. And they get into the bloodstream. They're called macromolecules. So that's the tear in the cheesecloth is number four, intestinal permeability or the leaky gut. That's tears in the cheesecloth. Then the big molecules get through into the bloodstream and your bloodstream is just a highway. 
you know, all the traffic's going the same direction, but it's just a highway. So now on the highway, you've got these macromolecules, the, these big molecules that aren't supposed to be there. And your immune system says, what's that? That's not something I can use to make new bone cells or brain cells or muscle cells. I better fight that. And then your immune system gets activated to protect you from whatever this thing is that's in the bloodstream now. And that is the chronic inflammation in your bloodstream. So that's number five, systemic inflammation in response to the molecules that go through the leaky gut. So it's genetics, environmental triggers, dysbiosis. It creates an environment of too many bad guys in the gut, creating intestinal permeability, allowing these big molecules to get through into the bloodstream, creating the systemic inflammation. That's the mechanism for autoimmune diseases and for Parkinson's and for Alzheimer's. And that is the primary mechanism of how systemic chronic uh, uh, diseases occur. So from that perspective, you, you want to stop throwing gasoline on the fire, causing the inflammation. So now with that background, now I can answer your question about this thing about wheat. Well, <clears throat> Tom, can I, before you do, uh, two things. Okay. First of all, I love your analogy of the cheesecloth. And, and I just want people to realize that the gut lining, the layer is only one layer thick. So it's one cell, yeah, one right. cell layer thick. One and cell thick. it's easily inflamed and become permeable. Uh, so I did want to just point that out. I, I love that analogy. It's beautifully explained. And, and then after you answered that question, would you, you had mentioned a little while ago about testing. So I definitely want us to cover testing, too. Like you said, you should get tested. Well, I'm sure immediately people in their mind thought, well, where, how do I get tested? Good. Happy to do that. And, and one more thing, too, is like gut dysbiosis, like Crohn's, colitis, irritable bowel, leaky gut. All of those things are, um, you know, examples of where the gut's inflamed. And so, so one of the things I want to talk about somewhere down the road is that do you is it those people that are at risk for eating gluten or if you have a healthy gut can you eat gluten so as you answer the question i mean keep going on would you kind of talk about that so our bodies are exactly the same as our ancestors thousands of years ago we have the same kidneys the same liver the same immune system the same gallbladders the same brain we use our brains more We've developed uh, more knowledge, and so we've got shelter and grow all our food and stuff. But we have the same body. Our ancestors, one of their primary concerns was to find food every day. And so they're looking around. They see something. They pick it up. The first thing they do is they sniff it. Then they nibble at it a little bit. And if it doesn't smell bad and if it tastes okay, they eat it. If there was bad bacteria in that food, dangerous bacteria, but just not so bad that it smelled really bad so we couldn't identify it. That bacteria, if it comes out of the stomach into the first part of the intestines, we have sentries standing guard there. Our ancestors had them and we've got the same thing. The sentry standing guard 
is like the British soldiers at Buckingham Palace. You know, those guys with the red hats, the big red hats, and they're just standing still all day long. But don't mess with those guys. Don't mess with them. But in general, they're dormant. They're just hanging on, hanging around. We have these sentries in the first part of our intestine, actually throughout the body, but for this discussion, in the first part of the intestine, that it's always looking to see what's coming out of the stomach. Is there anything here that we need to protect against? Is there anything? And when they see pathogens, bad bugs, they immediately fire their chemical bullets. So the sentry is called toll-like receptor four, geek term, but... That's the name. And when toll-like receptor four sees a threat, it does two things. It activates the protein that causes leaky gut. That's called zonulin, the protein. It activates that protein so you get leaky gut within five minutes of the guard seeing that there's a problem here. Within five minutes, you've got leaky gut. Why? because leaky gut brings water into the intestines and it brings the water in to flush out the threat with the poop. It's kind of like if you've got some mud caked on your driveway and you put your garden hose on there and it's not working, you put your thumb over the opening of the garden hose to get a jet spray and then you can wash off whatever's stuck on your driveway. Leaky gut is to wash out of the gut whatever toll-like receptor four says there's a threat here. So TLR4, toll-like receptor 4, does two things. It activates leaky gut. And the second thing it does is it activates the major amplifier of inflammation. And that's called NF-kappa B. But that's the big guy. Um, and then here comes the entire inflammatory cascade of what are called cytokines. And you get a cytokine storm in your gut. We've heard of cytokine storms in the lungs and the problems from viruses and all that. You get a cytokine storm in your gut when toll-like receptor 4 gets activated. Okay, so that's basic physiology. That saved our ancestors' lives time and time again. And those ancients who didn't have that capability, they died. They just died off and they didn't reproduce. So the ones that had this protective mechanism reproduced and their children have this and generation after generation. So we've got the same mechanism protecting us of any bad bugs coming out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine. So that's the background of how our bodies work. Now, here's the problem. The protein structure of the poorly digested wheat, you know, these pieces of the wheat protein, they're called peptides, like gluten's a peptide. There's a family of gluten proteins. There's a bunch of them in wheat. These protein structures look like the protein structure of a bad bug. And what they're publishing now and teaching at Harvard is that gluten is misinterpreted as a harmful component of a bug. So the protein structure looks a whole lot like the protein structure of bad bugs. So toll-like receptor 4 sees this coming out of the intestines and it activates 
leaky gut, and it activates a cytokine storm in the gut every time wheat comes out of the stomach. Peptides of wheat come out of the stomach every time. And Maureen Leonard, who is a famous gastroenterologist at Harvard, she reviewed 60, I think it was 67, it might have been 64, I'm not sure, studies on this topic, over 60 studies on this topic. And her conclusion, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, is gluten is misinterpreted as a harmful component of a microorganism. This occurs in all humans who eat wheat. So for those of you that are listening, if you consider yourself a human, this is happening to you. Every time you eat wheat, whether you feel it or not, we know that the science on wheat problems, whether it's gluten or other parts of wheat, the science is that for every one person that gets gut symptoms, there are eight people that don't. They get brain symptoms or skin symptoms or joint symptoms, some other part, wherever the weak link in their chain is. So wheat turns out to be pulling on the chain, causing inflammation in all humans, whether you feel it when you eat it or not. So they don't have to have the genes, the DQ2 and 8. You do not have to have the genes. The studies are very clear on that. Now, celiac disease is where we all cut our teeth. We all learned about the problems with wheat with celiac disease. And so, unfortunately, in the 1960s, the 1970s, 1980s, the operating premise was, well, if you don't have celiac, you don't have a problem with wheat. That was how our doctors were trained. That's not true. The incidence of celiac disease is about one to four out of a hundred, about one to four percent, depending on what country you're in. Well, the incidence of non-celiac gluten sensitivity is between six to seven out of 10. 60 to 70 people have an immune system fighting wheat and they don't have celiac disease. So if you limit yourself to considering only celiac disease, you'll catch one out of eight. You'll miss the rest. And you'll try all these other things to get healthy, but you test it for wheat and you don't have celiac. I mean, those two phrases should not be in the same sentence, you know, because testing for a wheat sensitivity is much more comprehensive than testing for celiac. Celiac is very important, very important to rule out but negative for celiac does not mean negative for wheat. That's really important to understand. And, and one of the things I want to add right here is that when you were talking about, uh, well, candidiasis yeast, which huge number of people have yeast, um, when the virus came, I don't know if you're supposed to say the name of the virus, but anyway, uh, I did a podcast, you know, go back and look it up with Dr. Leo Gallen, and he mentions this in his research on this, that, the virus activates Epstein-Barr and other viruses, members of the herpes family, but also yeast. So a lot of people have yeast. People that have had the virus uh, will probably be even more sensitive than ever. And yeast uh, mimics uh, to the immune system, just like you were explaining a little bit ago. Um, you know, it's a mimicker of gluten. They look just alike to the immune system, too, so that 
throw in all the people with candidiasis with a gut issue, that makes it even more people that shouldn't be eating it. Because, uh, yeah. So. That's right. That's right. What hap- You know, what happens is uh, people are going gluten-free. They're trying to be healthy, but they, when they do a test, they still have antibodies to wheat. They say, but I'm completely gluten-free. And there's a number of reasons why that might happen. But one of them is if they have candidiasis, that there's something called molecular mimicry, which means that one thing mimics another. And the protein structure of candida is very similar to the protein structure of poorly digested wheat. So if you have a candida infection, your wheat antibodies can be elevated and you're living gluten-free. Well, you've got to deal with the candidiasis. Thank you for explaining that. I love you're so good at explaining things so simply. I know at this point everybody's tracking. I want to just say one little thing because I just read a study like two days ago. Is that you were talking about the centine, you know, the cent security guards? That's what I call them. That are yes. there, like T cells yes. are the security guards. And um, so uh, this brand new study sh- is showing that uh, the gut secretes a protein to make sure that those T cells stay there that they don't go wandering off, they stay right there at the gut protecting it. So I, I always thought, wow, that's just another cool thing that we're discovering all the time about the gut. It's like pretty fascinating to my, uh, constantly. My first mentor was Dr. George Goodhart, and he would often say the body is intricately simple and simply intricate. So true. You know, and that's very true. I mean, we think we understand how the body works, and we're continually learning more and more and more. Well, before we forget, just talk a little bit more about testing. Like if they want to go get tested, what will they test? Sure. And it's important to understand this. And, you know, I can just say, well, do this test and you're fine. But then you'll come up against your family doctor or someone else who's going to say something else. And then you don't know, you know, what to do. So you have to understand the basics of this. The test to look for celiac disease is called transglutaminase. That's a really good test to do. If if you have celiac, that test is going to come back positive 97% of the time, right? The problem is when they validated the test, the way that laboratories get their tests validated, they buy 50 samples of blood, frozen blood, of people diagnosed with celiac disease. And then they run their blood test on that blood to see how often does it come back positive because we know these people are celiacs. And transglutaminase is really good. The problem with this test is that the, the validation was with blood of celiacs. Well, celiac disease means when the inside of your intestines, these finger-like projections, I call them shag carpeting that these shags, they're they're called microvilli, that they wear down and get worn out. And now you don't have shag carpeting anymore. You've got Berber. And when you've got Berber, you can't absorb your nutrients. That's celiac disease. And every single one of those people diagnosed with celiac disease were diagnosed because they did the tube down the stomach and look at, you know, and snip out a little piece of the intestine and look at it under a microscope. Yep, there's Berber, you know, that's villus atrophy, that's a celiac, every single one of them. And when 
you look at the blood of those people, 97 plus percent of them, transglutaminase is a really good test to do for celiac. However, if you get the blood of people that are at earlier stages of celiac, meaning their, their fingers haven't worn down completely, it could be partial villus atrophy, just half worn down or something, or still just the inflammation not yet wearing down at all, because celiac takes about seven years to develop once the process begins. But these people that don't have their shags worn down completely, the blood test is wrong six or seven out of 10 times. It says there's no problem because it's a very accurate blood test when you're at the end stage and you've got total villus atrophy. It's a very accurate test. But doctors don't know that it's not an accurate test for the earlier stages. So that's the first misconception is testing just for celiac disease. And if it comes back negative, it may not mean that you're okay, right? It may just mean that you're not at the end stage yet. So the more comprehensive tests Look at the pieces of wheat, the peptides of wheat. You know, if you think of protein like a pearl necklace, hydrochloric acid in your stomach undoes the clasp of the pearl necklace. Now you have a string of pearls. And your enzymes are the scissors to cut the pearl necklace into smaller and smaller pieces. Clip, 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 until you're down to each pearl of the pearl necklace. That's called an amino acid. And they are the building blocks of life, meaning you make new muscle cells and brain cells and bone cells from amino acids. The problem with wheat is that nobody can break it down into each pearl of the pearl necklace. The best we can do is break it into clumps, clumps of pearls. They're called peptides. And when those clumps of pearls come out of the stomach into the first part of the small intestine, they look like a bad bug. The protein structure looks like a dangerous bug. So our sentry, toll-like receptor 4, gets activated with every human when they eat wheat to create leaky gut and to create uh, inflammation in the gut. There's no question about it. There are many studies that show this now. So the test that you want to do is a test that looks at is my immune system fighting wheat? Meaning you've crossed the threshold. That's a much more comprehensive test than just looking for celiac disease. You, of course, want to check for celiac disease, but you want to look for the immune system fighting the clumps of the pearl necklace. Now, unfortunately, most laboratories only look at one clump of the pearl necklace. It's a 33 pearl clump, 33 amino acids, called alpha-glidin. And that test came out in 1998. Uh, no, no, 1994. And it's a really good test. You know, if you've got a problem with alpha-glidin, you've got a problem with wheat. But we now know there are 62 different clumps of the pearl necklace from wheat that trigger an immune response. And most doctors are only checking one. Alpha-glidin. Why? Well, that's what the laboratory offers, and they, they haven't expanded their services. 
So a new laboratory came out in 2016 that looks at 24 different clumps of the pearl necklace. It's called the wheat zoomer because you zoom in on the problem. And it also includes the most accurate test for leaky gut in the wheat zoomer test. So you find out, do I have a sensitivity to wheat? Is my immune system fighting wheat? And do I have leaky gut? You find out both of those on this one test. And if you go to my website, thedr.com, and go to tests, look for the wheat zoomer, download the information, take it to your doctor, and say, please order this test. And if they say no, because they don't know about that test, they're not going to do it. I mean, it's cutting edge, Mayo Clinic. I've got five different research papers for Mayo Clinic on this test. If they say no, then you can order the test on my site and, and we'll send it to you, right? But it's always better to take it to your doctor and so that they get educated on this. Well, um, okay, perfect. That's just the answer to that question. Now, I'd like to go get into some of the different disorders that you're gonna, people are going to experience if they're eating wheat. But I wanted to also, as, as the father of a um, little boy, and I know that you all, you and Marcy did everything right, you know, got ate well before you even got pregnant and then uh, did everything right, establishing his microbiome and breast milk. And so obviously we know he has a healthy microbiome, but I'm sure during that time, because it was so upfront for you, did you do research on uh, the effect of gluten on the microbiome and, and children, babies, like, you know, a lot of people start giving their Babies uh, teething biscuits and toast, maybe. I don't, I don't know exactly what's out there now, but I know that they'll have gluten in them. So I'd like to talk about that because I'd like for people not to do that. <laughs> well, the problem uh, with wheat is that it's the most common food that people eat. And uh, it turns out it's not correct for humans to eat. And this only began about 10,000 years ago when our ancestors started agriculture. They started growing grains, which gave them a source of food year-round so they could stay in one place. They were nomads before that, following the herds. But their diets changed dramatically after that. Uh, and the, the problem is right now, in the world of prebiotics, which is really your world, Donna, and you just have such great education on all of that, 80% of the prebiotic in the standard American diet, 80% comes from wheat. It's the arabinoxylans in wheat. So when you take wheat out of somebody's diet, uh, because their immune system's fighting wheat and it's a good thing to do because it triggers the development of autoimmune diseases across the board. But when you take wheat out of their diet, their microbiome, as healthy or unhealthy as it is, has been dependent on that food for their entire life. So let's take their primary food out of their diet and let's give them white paste in the form of gluten-free pasta or gluten-free toast or gluten-free cookies or, oh, 
this coffee shop's got gluten-free blueberry muffins. I could have one. It's healthy for me. I can have two. No, you can't. They're not healthy for you. They're just not poison for you, right? But so when you go on a gluten-free diet, you actually create more dysbiosis unless you know how to do it right. That's a really important point to understand is that you can't just transition from the current wheat-based products to gluten-free based products and keep having sandwiches every day. Uh, you, uh, you just can't do that. You have to learn how to eat more vegetables and quality meats and, and uh, fruits and quality grains if, if you're eating grains. Yeah, of course. I'm glad you said that. But I did want to throw in here a little bit of extra information because many, many of those gluten-free products have uh, almond. They're made with like almond flour. And almond almonds and almond flour are extremely high in oxalates. And I'm very my, I always teach people about oxalates, uh, particularly today, because people have candidiasis and the yeast are making oxalates already. And then we're eating almond flour, almond milk, um, just huge amounts, spinach, you know, many, many foods that are high in oxalates because they're popular and they're very supposedly healthy. So I wanted to also mention that one of the things in wheat is it's a very high oxalate food. So that's another reason for me it's off that list. But watch out, gluten-free could be almonds, and now you've created another uh, almond flour. There's a great book that just came out a few months ago by our friend Dr. David Perlmutter called Drop Acid. It's a great book, and it's talking about uric acid, dropping uric acid, uh, and many, many other uh, concerns. So, and so to, to your question about children, there have been there are studies that have shown if you give kids wheat in the first uh, year of life, um, uh, do you reduce their incidence of developing celiac if they carry those genes? Most studies say no. Um, it do- doesn't. You can't prime them. And some studies say yes. So there's there's not a complete consensus yet on that topic, but there is another one, another topic that really shocked me when I um, learned this one. And that was... Um, was it about type, type it 1 diabetes? It's not type 1 diabetes. That's so that's exactly the pancreas. Right, that's exactly right. They looked at 86,000 children and they, they followed 86,000 pregnant women and then their offspring. Um, and they wanted to know if mom was eating wheat during pregnancy or if baby started eating wheat around six months of age up to 18 months of age. Any increased risk of developing diabetes. And they followed these kids for up to 15, 14 or 15 years. And what they found was that for every 10 grams of gluten that children eat, their risk of developing diabetes, irrespective of their genetics, didn't matter. Their risk of developing diabetes was increased 86% if they ate 10 grams of gluten a day. But now, not, a, not necessarily immediately, right? It means maybe down the road when they're... Uh, oh, yeah, when they were 12, 13, so 14. So early on even. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. But if they were eating wheat early in life, 
in the first 18 months of life, then their risk was increased by 86%. I mean, that was jaw-dropping. That was just jaw-dropping. It was like, what? And every, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said that wrong. I'm sorry. It's 46%, not 86. 46% for each 10 grams per day of gluten consumed, 46%. Now, how much gluten is in a slice of bread? Two to four grams. So if they were eating 10 grams a day or more, their risk of developing diabetes went up to uh, 46%. Well, lots of kids eat uh, before they go to school in the morning or whatever. They'll have cereal because it's so convenient. They have cereal and then they have a sandwich. They have a sandwich at lunch. And a lunchbox. So they're getting a lot more than, they're getting too much basically. So, And this is such important information to get out time because I know uh, quite a few mothers right now with little babies and they're being so conscientious and are not introducing certain foods, milk or something, you know, too early, but they don't know about this. So for anybody listening, please, please get this word out. Uh, it's critical to know that. Well, <clears throat> there's something that you said um, that I wanted to add to that. Um, well, that's okay. I'll, uh, I forgot what it is already, so we'll just go on. But uh, so, it's, but we're talking about the pancreas. It'll come I know back. it does. It will. But um, so, so it doesn't have to do with genes. I think that's the most important thing. But um, what I really wanted to also talk about is everybody wants their child to be intelligent, and uh, there's a big difference in when children start to speak, like. Our body ecology babies are speaking very clearly at two years old. Uh, we've, you know, already got them on pickles and the juice of fermented vegetables early on, and so they have this really good microbiome. You know, I, I, I often feel that that's an antidote. So, like, if I were going to eat a piece of bread or something, I would actually go eat, I put some fermented vegetables on the bread to make sure that I have those microbes in there that would be degrading. Lactobacillus plantarum does degrade uh, gluten, and there's a, good, a ton of research on that. I have a big book here beside me. But not completely. It helps to break it down a little bit, but nothing has been shown to break down the immunogenic peptides. You still have the immune response. That's the key. And the bottom line is do the wheat zoomer and just find out if your immune system's fighting wheat and you've been squeaky clean doing the best you can and you come back positive, there's something you're missing. And then you have to explore to see where it is you're missing. So there's a number of different bacteria that help to break down gluten. And there's some in the oral cavity that help to break down gluten, but none of them break it down completely. You still trigger the immune response. That's a really important takeaway. So this is a good time to talk about fermentation. Um, for example, sourdough bread. There is a, a bakery called Time Traveler's Bakery that teaches you, you can go online and you know um, buy the course uh, that teaches you how to double ferment the bread. And they actually then send you the starter too, so you can do it yourself. And they say that, um, and they have an actual bakery if you live close by, but I think they're in like Idaho or something. But anyway, you can go in and buy their wheat or you can have it shipped to you, their bread. But they say that they have many, many people, you know, who can 
normally would be sensitive to gluten, uh, non-celiac, not, not necessarily um, that they'd have the genes to be celiac, but even some of those people, they say, can, can eat their bread. But I th- So that's interesting, but um, what I thought, basically I think what you're saying is they may not be having problems that are obvious, but they are even double fermentation. Um, have you looked into that? Because obviously sour- I have. sourdough breads. I have. The problem is people are using how they feel to determine whether it's a problem or not. And it's the same concept as when people say, I can go to Europe and eat the bread and I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem at all. It's the very same concept. And that there's, ne- there's only one study that has ever shown, as far as I know, has ever shown that fermenting the dough, you can break down the proteins enough to where it doesn't activate your immune system. Only one study, and I was really surprised to find this study, but it worked. It worked completely. But they had to use six different strains of Lactobacillus San Franciscus. And when they used six strains, it completely broke down the proteins. But using one strain or two strains or three strains didn't do it. So nothing has ever been shown other than this one to completely break down the gluten proteins. And that's the key. The key is, is your immune system fighting wheat? If it is, it's non-negotiable. The reason that people can go to Europe and eat the wheat and not have a problem, because the problems that they associate with eating wheat, they get bloated, they get gas pains, they get loose bowels or constipation, they get gut symptoms. And when they go to Europe, they eat the wheat there. They don't get gut symptoms, so they think they're okay. Well, why don't they get but, gut symptoms? Is it because the wheat is different? Yes, the that- wheat in Europe is much lower in FODMAPs. And it's the FODMAPs that create the gut symptoms, the bloating and the gas. It's the proteins that create the immune reaction and antibodies to your brain, and antibodies to your thyroid, and antibodies to your joints, and MS, and rheumatoid. It's the proteins, not the FODMAPs. And the wheat... And in- so I'd like to talk about FODMAPs. Yeah, sure. Um, but- and also, so that's what my article was about, uh, a FODMAP right. in wheat called fructin. And there's another one, too, called GOS, saccharides. It's the same thing that's in beans and in legumes it's called goss so those are the two <coughs> excuse me those are the two five maps in wheat and uh, again they do cause gas and bloating that's why they're on the five map list but i'm so glad you clarified this and by the way if people want to go read my article i think it's a really good article but i did not say to eat gluten and i think tom is making it very clear that gluten is a protein it does it's not good but the five maps are going to cause other problems too. And then, but but what about Tom about the ancient wheats like emmer? Really good Iron question, corn. right? Spelt and emmer and Quran. Uh, uh, Kamut, right. I guess, but especially you, you can even buy emmer. Studies are very clear. Or einkorn. Protein yeah. structures. Once you've crossed the line of tolerance and you're making antibodies to wheat, you cannot eat any strain of wheat, including the ancient strains they still stimulate the immune response. Now, theoretically, if you were to introduce a child, which I'm going to do, 
introduce our son in the next six months or so to ancient wheat crackers. And I'll give him like a half a cracker once or twice a week and see how his body responds to that. Because when he gets a little older, he's 19 months now, but when he gets older, he's going to go to a friend's house for a birthday party and eat some cupcake or something, you know. So I'd like to see if we can help build his resilience. And because you're basically, um, uh, so the microbes in his gut will begin to become educated in a sense to this wheat. That's exactly uh, right. Healthier quality wheat. Because people ate it for thousands of years. People ate wheat 10,000 years at least. Yeah, wheat, wheat is a minor irritant. It triggers leaky gut in everyone, but it's transient leaky gut. Your gut heals. But the problem is you eat it multiple times a day, every day, and then eventually you cross that line of tolerance. Now your immune system's making antibodies to it. And those antibodies have molecular mimicry with wherever the weak link is in your chain, your genetic vulnerability. So you make the antibodies to wheat, and for someone, it's going to create antibodies to thyroid. And you develop Hashimoto's thyroid disease. You make antibodies to wheat, for someone else, it's going to attack the myelin the saran wrap around their nerves, and they get MS. So it just depends on your genetics and how you've lived your life as to where the weak link is in your chain. But when you make the antibodies to wheat, they're now in your bloodstream, and the protein structure is so similar to our own tissue, your genetics will determine where those antibodies may attack. So do you have any celiac in your family or any relatives that would that GO might have? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. My mother, my mother had celiac, non-diagnosed celiac disease. You bet. And so, yeah. So she had the and genes. I don't have the genes. I, I, I do not have the genes, and we've not run a genetic test on our son yet. We will. Mm-hmm. But my wife was a celiac. Oh wow, is a celiac. Yeah. So do so you feel he likely has the genes? Yeah. So by introducing a little bit, uh, so you know the microbes, it takes them a little while to figure out this new food and alter themselves so they can continue. Would you keep, are you saying that you're going to keep giving him a little bit so that? No, I'm going to, I'm going to give an introduction Mm -hmm. for a couple of months, maybe Mm -hmm. once a week, maybe probably just once a week, maybe twice a week. And then I'll do a blood test. Okay. And I will see. Um, is his immune system making antibodies to wheat? You know, I thought so of... So we'll check to see. I thought of another, some more research on uh, gut dysbiosis, like Crohn's, for example. Those people have very low diversity, and they're very low, deficient in... Firmic, firm, I call them firmicutes. Some people say firmicutes, but I don't know. Here, it pronounced both ways. But that those would be your grain-loving uh, microbes, um, Pratsnutsi, for example, um, you know, they're, they're, so I think it's probably a good idea to do that. I mean, I think that's a great idea to do that. Uh, it'll be interesting. You have to let us, let me know, I guess, you know, yes, what yes, happens. Because it it's it important. What you're saying is extremely important. I mean, everybody starts life. We want our kids to have a healthy microbiome, but then what are we going to train them to eat? So I'm really glad you brought right. that up this time. And, um, so, but I want to. So you mentioned Hashimoto. I mean, thyroid, which so many people have Hashimoto's today, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit more. But everybody with Hashimoto's should be. That would be a sign that you should be off of wheat, wouldn't you say? Well, the, no, the, that would be a sign. You need to be tested. 
to see if wheat is a problem. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, always, uh, my rule is test, mm. don't guess. Okay, good. Test. And the wheat zoomer is the most comprehensive test on the Look, I just came back from a seven-week speaking tour in Europe. You know, I did um, two talks in Dublin, three in London, Rome, uh, Switzerland. Uh, and I am always looking at the labs during the, the breaks, the intermissions, you know, and all the doctors are going down to see the vendors that are there with their things they want doctors to use and the labs are there. I'm always looking at the labs to see what kind of tests they're offering. No one has anything that comes near the accuracy of the Zoomer well, excuse me, the Zoomer tests. It, Absolutely no. So how long does it take to get the results back? Is it an immediate? Oh, probably probably um, uh, two business weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, uh, it's a simple blood test, and we can send a phlebotomist to your house or to where you work, mm -hmm. you know, or we, we can tell you where there's a center close by. We'll send you the test kit. You go get the blood drawn and ship it off. Uh, uh, they also have a finger prick version for the wheat zoomer. That's just as accurate. Mayo Clinic published on the finger prick technology. Oh, you're and, drawing uh, blood. They did it. Pricking the finger and taking yeah. the blood, blood spot test. Yeah. yeah. In, instead of doing a blood draw, just, just do a finger prick. So you've got two options either way. But it's the most accurate test that's out in the world. I, I don't know about China, but um, in the English-speaking world and well, uh, Europe, so it's, it's the most accurate. Somebody like me, for example, I don't eat gluten, haven't for a very, very, very long time. So if I took it, uh, which I'd like to, um, because I don't have the microbes in my gut for eating, for digesting wheat, do you think the test would be accurate for somebody that hasn't been eating wheat? It's, yeah, yeah, it's always accurate. It's highly, highly accurate. Uh, the only exception is if your immune system is really compromised and you don't make enough immunoglobulins, antibodies. Mm -hmm. So if you're not making adequate amounts of immunoglobulins, you can't test immunoglobulins. It's not going to work, right? But aside from that, the test is always accurate. That's what's so remarkable about this technology. And rarely do we see someone who comes back negative, uh, uh, especially on a first test, that's extremely rare. But even people that have been gluten-free for years, but you're also grain-free and you've worked so hard on your microbiome, you may be one of those people that comes back negative. Well, well you know that, um, so a couple of things. First of all, just to clarify that, um, you know, the yeast in our gut, the healthy ones like Saccharomyces boulardii, they actually need grains in the diet. There's a wonderful new, you know, pretty new book out on that. And um, and also, I'm a blood type A, and I just noticed that when I was completely, strictly paleo, you know, you know so I had candidiasis, I developed the diet, I wanted people to be gluten-free, casein-free, fix the gut, get rid of the yeast and other infections, bring the inflammation, that was like the goal. But then I was successfully able to do that, and so then my, in stage two of body ecology, you know, I, I was, um, I have introduced a few grains, um, because I need GABA, the amino, uh, that's an amino acid that's calming, and most A's I'm find, I've found for years. Eight out of 10 of the kids with autism um, are blood type A, by the way. <clears throat> so I've worked with a lot of people, you know, that are moms and the kids, and, and they, so just be completely um, 
a lot of like paleo or keto and you don't get anything like that in your diet, I've just found that the greens properly prepared, got to be soaked. You know, I usually think it's really important to introduce them in a um, like a soup or something. So you're not eating and you know, we have an 80-20 rule. So you're just having 80% vegetables, just a little bit of the grain. Um, so like a soup is a great way to put it in. But then, then you have the fiber and you have the food for the beneficial yeast. So I do, I didn't want to just leave it like that because I do, uh, and also there's a couple of uh, companies like True Roots. They've, um, I think it was probably developed in Japan, but they're, it's, a, it's a, a rice, a brown rice that's very high in GABA. And black rice is very high in GABA too. So I do have that and I find I sleep better. You know, that I was actually having sleeping problems until I started uh, putting all these pieces together. And so um, I, I do eat a carefully, properly prepared uh, stem grain. And, you know, that's something important I think for people to know about is that paleo is, if you feel, you know, in other words, if you start sneaking some, introducing some grains into your diet, the right ones, um, then, you know, people feel guilty. Like they, oh, I'm, I do eat some, I'm embarrassed because we're supposed to all be paleo, but I just wanted to add that piece of information in there. You bet, you bet. You have to listen to your body. Body language never lies. And you should have a number of markers that you follow to see how's my body doing, not just how, how do you feel, because by the time you feel bad, things have been off for quite a while. Your body does everything it can to compensate so that you don't get pain. You don't have pain and you don't have fatigue. So by the time you do have fatigue, by the time you do have pain, you've crossed the line. You know, something's been out of balance for quite well, a while. Well, for me, it was just, I just noticed I wasn't sleeping. And uh, you need yes. GABA as an anti-anxiety neurotransmitter. Um, and I just knew you know, as, as I do, I'm very intuitive for my own body. I know it really well, and everybody should. But uh, so I only had one more thing to bring up, and then I'll let you go. But um, so body ecology has always been um, gluten-free and casein-free. And um, do you think, I do, but I'd like your opinion on this, because when you're eating gluten and you're inflaming your gut and opening the gut lining and so on, that's not a good time to have dairy either, so the casein. So um, I notice a lot of gut experts that um, study the microbiome, and uh, I was just listening to a podcast this morning with somebody that's an expert in, in feeding the microbiome. He does recommend um, kefir. Uh, I, I prefer kefir over yogurt, but he, you know, these they're in fermented vegetables and all. They're they're actually in the category of food that these gut experts that study literally look at the microbes and, and what makes them grow um they they recommend fermented dairy so um what do you want to add anything to that i just yeah yeah the idea of feeding your microbiome is critically important to build the diversity and the strength of the good guys in your gut that's critically important i do coconut kefir uh, Which is but, not a FODMAP, by uh, the way, because <laughs> lactose in milk or even fermented things, they you know they still have some lactose in them, so people are going to react unless they get lactose-free. The problem, the problem with gut experts uh, in this discussion is that they're looking at the results in their gut uh, by using 
kefir, you know, fermented dairy products. Well, the microbiome builds itself. You get more diversity. Well, that's great. But what is the immune system saying? What is the armed forces doing in your body? And if the armed forces are activated to protect you, if you're producing antibodies against casein, or you're producing antibodies against any of the proteins of dairy, uh, there are many, and there's the dairy zoomer test also, like the wheat zoomer, that if you are producing antibodies to dairy, you can't have dairy, period. Because the antibodies to dairy have a notorious association of molecular mimicry with different tissues in your brain. So you get more brain inflammation. You get more um, uh, autoimmune mechanisms in your brain. Just Google casein and sudden infant death syndrome. Just Google it. And you see the studies that are associated with the possibility, maybe this is but, the but a But a baby, because, brand new baby, isn't necessarily getting casein. You might be getting soy milk or certainly hopefully breast milk. How can that, I mean, sudden well, infant yeah, death is mom, easy. Uh, bottle feeding. If they're bottle feeding, they're oh, getting dairy. Okay, versus soy. Uh, and yeah. Most of the kids with autism that yeah. I ever worked with are given soy, which has gotten its own yeah. problems too. Well, but I just... But the point, the point is you, you can't, Base your choices just on how you feel. You have to base your choices on markers like the dashboard on your car. You can't tell when you're driving your car if the engine's overheating or about to overheat or if the oil's getting a little low. You can't tell unless you're looking at the gauges on the dashboard. It's the same with your body. And the immune system is your dashboard of what's okay and what's not okay in your body. You can't argue with it. It's it's just basic physiology, you know, but most doctors don't use this concept that uh, test don't guess. So if you're fighting dairy, irrespective of how you feel when you eat dairy products, if your immune system's elevated fighting dairy, you can't eat dairy. Because of the molecular mimicry, you'll, you are at high risk of developing an autoimmune disease wherever the weak link is in your chain. So they can get the dairy zoomer from you also? Yes, yes. Oh, perfect. That's, I'm so glad we threw that in at the last minute because it's important. Um, the other thing, too, uh, you know, opioid, the opioid epidemic is a big issue. And I did want to throw that in, too, about the brain and how casomorphine uh, and Gluten, both both of them are addictive. Yeah, and, there's there's yeah, so components. Just, there yeah. there are components to poorly digested proteins of wheat and dairy. That uh, one is called casomorphins, and with wheat, it's gluteomorphins or prodynorphins. There are families of these compounds that they stimulate the opiate receptors in your brain. And so you get a little buzz from eating wheat or from eating dairy, and you don't know you're getting, oh, I just feel good when I eat dairy. You know, you kind of smile. I just feel so good. So addictive as yeah, is. Exactly, exactly. Morphine. And so for people that have, uh, when you do the test, if you've got elevated antibodies to gluteomorphins or prodynorphins or casomorphins, 
those are the people who are the exception for implementation because there's no such thing as a cheat day. There's no such thing as a low gluten diet. You can't have any because your immune system gets activated from any exposure and the complications from one exposure will last two to four months from one exposure. The, the only exception to that is if when, when you do your uh, uh, wheat zoomer or your dairy zoomer, if you've got elevated antibodies to casomorphin or gluteomorphins or prodynorphins, then our counsel is, well, Mrs. Patient, we're going to take it slower here. You know, normally we just say time to go gluten-free, but in your case, because your opiate receptors are so acclimated and so used to getting that stimulus, that buzz from wheat, that we're going to start with breakfast, two breakfasts a week that are gluten-free. And then next week, maybe three breakfasts a week. And then after that, four breakfasts a week, and then start with one lunch a week. So it's going to take you a couple of months to transition. And here's the foods to eat in the meantime, so that we can give you a more natural buzz for your opiate receptors, because you'll have withdrawals. You're likely to have withdrawals if you just try and stop cold turkey. And there's no need to suffer like that. So let's just transfer you, let's transition you to a gluten-free, dairy-free lifestyle. But what would be the substitutes? People are already thinking, uh, what should I be doing instead? The, the, the substitutes for stimulating your opiate receptors are two. First is spicy foods. Spicy foods uh, will uh, uh, stimulate your opiate receptor. So a little bit, I put a little bit of cayenne pepper. That's um, really the hot red pepper spice. I just put a little bit in almost everything I eat. I've got it in a salt shaker and I put it in and I can't taste it in the food, but I know just a few molecules here and there are getting in. Some will be absorbed, some won't, you know, but just a little bit. Uh, chili peppers, if you, uh, you might like a little saucy, you know, food. I, I often order food and I say, ask the chef to make it sassy. And the waiter or waitress will laugh, you know. But the idea is, to your taste, um, just a little bit of spice, uh, um, oregano, uh, uh, thyme, uh, parsley. They all will stimulate your opiate receptors to a minor degree, but they all will. So adding more spice, uh, learning how to work with spices is a great idea. And I have two coffee bean grinders on our counter. One's for the coffee beans, you know, and the other one is for my spices. The spices sit in the jar, you know, they're organic, but they've been sitting in the jar for a year or more. And so I'll put the spices in a coffee grinder and you break them up that way. And all of a sudden they smell so much stronger, you know, because you're releasing some of the oils that are in there. So including more spices in your food will help with that transition. Was there one more? Because you had said two, just, just different spices. Um, there are a number of different types of spices that um, there's a whole variety of spices that you can use. Well, I'm glad I asked you that because it's last minute here. So um, now people that want to order the wheat zoomer and the dairy zoomer, um, how do they do that? And then 
Thank you very much for doing this, but I definitely want people to take this seriously. Share this, please. This is really important information. Yeah, uh, uh, thank you for that. And so, how do they reach you? Sure, our website. Order the test. Our website is thedr.com. Thedoctor.com. Just don't spell the word doctor out. Thedr.com. And also, and, and are they expensive tests? Uh, is this people no, are wondering? Surprisingly, kind of not. Uh, the wheat zoomer, I think, is about. You know, it's not cheap, but it's it's about four hundred dollars, maybe a little bit less than that, I think. But if you were to do the twenty six markers with any other lab, it would be over twelve hundred dollars for that. And then they also do the intestinal permeability, the leaky gut, on there, and that's another two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars somewhere else. So it's really a extremely fair price. They underpriced it for the purpose of gaining the market. You know, it was a smart move from a business perspective for a laboratory to have the best test in the world and make it cheaper than anywhere else that people can get it. Uh, and the dairy, can you add the two to get Yeah, you the know, dairy you, you zoomer the same time, um, right? is probably about the same price. I've, I'm sorry, I've never priced these. I don't really know. Well, that's all right. We'll figure yeah. it out ourselves. Yeah, but they're, yeah. Not, they're not prohibitive. I guess that's the way that I would say it. And insurance won't pay for them. Uh, insurance will not. That's correct. The insurance will okay, not good. pay for them. Good to put but that your health too. accounts, your health accounts will. So, so, so many people have uh, where they work a certain number of dollars that they can apply towards health care. And mm. uh, many people have used those allocated dollars to do these types of tests. Uh, well, this is an important one. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, there's nobody better than you for creating analogies to explain everything. I mean, I think at this point, everybody has a very clear picture in their mind of of why they have to avoid gluten. Well, I'm glad. Casey, I'm, I'm really yeah. glad. Yeah, it's critically important to be tested when when any type of health concern, any frustrations you have, it doesn't matter what they are. Wherever the weak link is, that's where a sensitivity to wheat can manifest. Uh, it doesn't matter what tissue. There are no most, the most common symptom is brain fog. And after that is fatigue. Uh, uh, but that's true with other problems also. Uh, so, but it doesn't matter where the symptoms are. Uh, the rule is test and there's no better test than the wheat zoomer. Well, you know what? I was going to do 45 minutes to an hour. But we're over that, and oh uh, that's I totally lost. Hope everybody listening just completely lost track of time. And Tom, thank you. I know how busy you are. I know how you treasure your moments with your family too. So I very much appreciate you taking this time to be with us. And it's just great information. Well, so really happy we did it. Really a pleasure. I'm glad we did this. Also, thank you so very much. Body ecology is not a diet. It's a way of life based on seven universal laws that always guide us toward the truth. If you want to know more about us, about these seven universal laws, and about our amazing, effective products, go to our website, bodyecology.com. Also, for a free transcript of this show, go to our website. Again, that's bodyecology.com. And of course, if you like what you're learning, we'd be very grateful for a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got a topic you want to learn about, just let us know. 
This information does not replace the advice of your doctor or healthcare professional. Thank you very much for listening, and here's to a happier, healthier world.